You're listening to the sermon audio from Mill Creek Community Church. If you like what you've heard or want to find out more information, please visit our website at mymillcreek.com. Good morning. I'm Chris Isaacs. I'm one of the elders here. We're reading out of Romans 14 today. It's page 655. If you don't have a Bible and you need a chairback Bible in front of you, 655. This is the word of the Lord. As for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him, but not to quarrel over opinions. One person believes he may eat anything, while the weak person eats only vegetables. Let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains, and let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats, for God has welcomed him. Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It is before his own own master that he stands or falls, and he will be upheld, for the Lord is able to make him stand. One person esteems one day as better than another, while another esteems all days alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. The one who observes the day observes it in honor of the Lord. The one who eats, eats in honor of the Lord, since he gives thanks to God, while the one who abstains, abstains in honor of the Lord and gives thanks to God. For none of us lives to himself, and none of us dies to himself. For if we live, we live to the Lord, and if we die, we die to the Lord. So then, whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. For to this end Christ died and lived again, that he might be Lord both of the dead and of the living. Why do you pass judgment on your brother? Or you, why do you despise your brother? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. For it is written, As I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me, and every tongue shall confess to God. So then each of us will give an account of himself to God. Therefore, let us not pass judgment on one another any longer, but rather decide never to put a stumbling block or hindrance in the way of a brother. I know and am persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself, but it is unclean for anyone who thinks it is unclean. For if your brother is grieved by what you eat, you are no longer walking in love. By what you eat, do not destroy the one for whom Christ died. So do not let what you regard as good be spoken of as evil. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Whoever thus serves Christ is acceptable to God and approved by men. So then let us pursue what makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding. Do not, for the sake of food, destroy the work of God. Everything is indeed clean, but it is wrong for anyone to make another stumble by what he eats. It is good not to eat meat or drink wine or do anything that causes your brother to stumble. The faith that you have, keep between yourself and God. Blessed is the one who has no reason to pass judgment on himself for what he approves. But whoever has doubts is condemned if he eats because the eating is not from faith. For whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. Let's pray. God, thank you for your word and your spirit, Lord Spirit, that you would please illumine our hearts with your word. Give Jeremy 
great passion and power and clarity as he preaches. May he preach faithfully from the text. And Lord, may our hearts be open to hear and apply your word and obey. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Chris. The theology of conscience is one of the most neglected doctrines in the church today. The theology of conscience is one of the most neglected doctrines in the church Today, I read that sentence in a book called Conscience and thought to myself, that is the most boring sentence I've ever read, and this is the most boring book I've ever thought about reading. And I bet they don't sell a lot, and I bet they don't finish them, whoever did buy it. And I finished that book about six months ago. And I confess, I was dead wrong. I was dead wrong. I have now become convinced this is not only a very neglected doctrine in church today, in our culture, but it is a neglected doctrine in this church of which I have been tasked to be the lead teaching pastor. Case in point that it is most neglected, I didn't even know that the doctrine of the conscience was really a thing until like six months ago. I've heard of issues of freedom, and I had some like nebulous idea so that if you would have said something to me, I just would have nodded along and said, mm-hmm. But I wouldn't have opened my mouth and talked about it because the Proverbs tell you a fool opens up and just talks about all this stuff and I know I don't know anything about it, so I'm just going to be quiet. Thank goodness nobody asked me about this when I was a youth pastor or six years ago when you all hired me, nobody asked me about that in the interview. Thank the Lord he doesn't call the equipped. He equips the calls, amen? By God's grace, I'm not. Only familiar with the doctrine of conscience, I'm honored, I'm honored to preach Romans 14 today, which is all about the doctrine of conscience. But I realize some of you might be sitting there thinking like I was, doctrine of conscience, you got to be kidding me. Let me try to convince you with a couple examples of why this is so crucial for the church today. Examples. If you voted for Donald Trump this election, you're not a Christian. I mean, you may think you are, but do you know what that guy stands for? And have you even considered his behavior? No. Real Christians. Real Christians don't vote for Donald Trump. And if I was in leadership, I'd church discipline anybody who did that. 
any Christian who voted for Biden is not a Christian. Do you know what that guy stands for? Have you considered the platform? I mean, the way that he's totally disregarded the Hyde Amendment and is for legislation that may be some of the worst legislation in the history of our country. If a person voted for Biden, if I was in leadership, I'd church discipline him. That's sin. If anybody voted for Biden or Trump, they are sinners. <laughs> and if I was in leadership, kick them all out. That maybe didn't hit raw nerves like it would have a year ago, but that would be a conscience issue. Maybe you're thinking, no, man, I'm good with that one. Let me try one that's one more radioactive. Christians, if you're going to be a Christian, you must wear a mask and get vaccinated. Otherwise, you're clearly not concerned about the clear biblical commands of submitting to government, honoring your neighbor, loving your neighbor. Christians who don't wear a mask or get vaccinated are totally unbiblical. Or... Christians who wear masks are totally unbiblical. They're, they, they're not thinking. They need to wake up because this is a freedom of religion issue. And, and, and if you love the USA, it's going to get replaced by a social power-hungry government, but that's maybe what y'all want anyway because you're not Christian. Church discipline As it turns out, conscience issues of politics and masks, they're just the tip of the iceberg. And they've been around since the, since the church started, Romans 14. In, in, in previous generations, it was circumcision. To be a Christian, do you have to get circumcised or not get circumcised? That's Book of Galatians. In our more recent history, it was worship wars. Can you have drums and an electric guitar and really worship Jesus or not? In some churches not so long ago, guys had to wear slacks, have to have short hair, can't wear a hat if you're going to really worship Jesus. And so you see the guy with the shorts, long hair, and hat come in and you're just like, we should stop and pray right now. They might repent. Women not so long ago, you had to wear a dress. You could not wear makeup if you're going to be a real Christian. So a gal comes in, and you're like, let's bring on the church discipline. When I was a youth pastor and starting out, it was Harry Potter. Can you read Harry Potter or not? It wasn't funny then, man. There was like, I was like Radioactive. This morning, we are in Romans 14. We come face to face with the doctrine of conscience. And while I suppose this may not be the most neglected doctrine right now in churches, I do think it's one of the most helpful doctrines for church unity. 
I think this is one of the most important doctrines for church unity. It's because conscience issues can be so radioactive. If you don't understand what a conscience issue is, it will lead to endless fighting and ultimately church division. And what we're going to find in Romans 14 is churches shouldn't be dividing over conscience issues. They should be fighting for unity. Churches shouldn't be fighting and dividing over conscience issues. They should be fighting for unity. And that's the sermon in a sentence. That's where this sermon's going. And to get there, I'm going to trace Paul's two big ideas in our text. He's got two big ideas in our text. That will be idea, big, big idea number one and number two. And then our final big idea, if you've got the outline, that's going to be application. And before I'm done, I'm going to ask a special guest to join me on stage to talk about it for a minute. If you have your Bibles, and I hope you do, let's do this. We're going to do work. Romans 14, verses 1 to the beginning of 13. Here's the question Paul's going to answer. How do Christians stay united in a church when they disagree about conscience issues? How do Christians stay united in the church when they disagree about conscience issues? Right here at the top, I think it'd be super helpful to clarify a couple terms, define a few terms and ideas so we're all on the same page. First, the word conscience isn't actually in Romans 14. If you're using a program and you word search conscience in the ESV, you won't find it. The word in Romans 14.1 is opinion. That's the word that means disputable matters. You get the word conscience in Romans 13. You get it in 1 Corinthians 8, a sister passage. But the word isn't in this chapter. Nevertheless, theologians call this the doctrine of Conscience, And I found it helpful from that book, which if you'd like a copy, I'd be happy to loan you mine or get you your own. Uh, uh, in the book, they define, uh, they explain that conscience, like the conscience itself, is something all of us have. And the conscience is different than the Holy Spirit. A conscience is something every person has, Christian or not, and, and consciences work in black and white. Very binary. Your conscience does not like gray. It's either right or it's wrong. Everybody has a conscience, and we make decisions all day long about whether we think something's okay or not okay. And in fact, we could probably list a hundred or a thousand different things that we talk about with conscience issues, from Harry Potter and politics to do you do five over when you're on the interstate? And are you okay eating fast food every day? We, there's so many conscience issues. And all of us, because of primary socialization, the kind of church that we grew up in, our spouses, our worldview, all of us land in different places on those questions, so much so that it actually would be unlikely that any two people in here perfectly agree on the thousands of conscience issues that we could come up with. So, 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 so disputable matters or opinions in our text, that's what a conscience is. A conscience issue then, you might want to write this definition down. I found it helpful. 
Christian behaviors the Bible is silent about but are disputed by Christians. That's what I'm calling a conscience issue this morning. It's something that we do, the Bible is silent about, but Christians dispute it. So by way of an example, we're not calling drunkenness a conscience issue. Bible's clear. That's not okay. But can you have a little bit of rated R movie on a day? The Bible doesn't tell us exactly. That would be a conscience issue. Okay, so that's some definitions. One more. Uh, what is this weak and strong in the faith, Pastor? Okay, weak in the faith is not talking about spiritual immaturity. That's very easy to jump to that conclusion, but weak in the faith isn't you're not spiritually mature, and, and neither is strong in the faith the person who's really spiritual mature and they've been around for a while and they get it all. No. Strong in the faith means that there are two options that you can do on a given topic. You can do them with a clear conscience or you cannot do them with a clear conscience and you're okay. Weak in the faith is the person who when presented with a sensitive issue to honor their conscience can only do one thing. In our text, Paul's going to talk about eating meat versus veggies. He's going to talk about holy days like Sabbath or not practicing Sabbath. And then he's going to talk about wine. Can you drink wine? Can you not drink wine? Those weak in the faith when presented with Chinese buffet can only eat the veggie dishes. So it's not spiritual maturity. They're just going, before the Lord, I can't eat the meat. Whereas those strong in the faith can, with a clear conscience, eat anything. So with all that established, look at right at the top. Verse 1, welcome the weak in faith by not quarreling over opinions. As for the one who's weak in faith, welcome him, but not to quarrel over opinions. If a person really believes the gospel, and for the first part of Romans, chapters 1 to 8, he said, this is what gospel is. Second part of Romans 9 to 11, this is how the gospel impacts Gentiles and Jews. And then here from Romans 12 to the rest, here's how the gospel changes the way we live. If the gospel is really operating in you and you believe Jesus and you're trusting in him, then don't fight over these disputable matters. Verse 3, let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains and let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats. I think verse 3 is crucial for us because it reveals something we all do today. You've got these sincere Roman Christians who are weak in the faith and they cannot eat the meat. And they are looking down on those who go to the potluck and eat the meat. I just cannot believe they're eating that meat right now. Do they not know? Do they not know what the Bible says? 
you've got those strong in the faith who, who are eating meat and they're looking down at their brother or sister who's weak going, I cannot believe they don't eat the meat. They're legalists. Right, read the Bible. Talk to Paul. That's what they're doing then. And I think it's what we do now. Take masks, for example. Sincere Christians are compelled to wear a mask. And those on the other side have a tendency to look down at them and say, you're so weak. There are those on the other side. I can't believe they're wearing a mask. It's judgmentalism. Or, or maybe you take issue with masks as an example, seeing as masks are a public health issue unrelated to conscience. Okay, then exchange the example for a political party or a voting strategy or Harry Potter. I can read Harry Potter with a clear conscience, but I despise those people over there. Or I can't read Harry Potter with a clear conscience, but I despise those over there who can. They, are they even Christians? And then and the person over here saying, man, man, I can't read Harry Potter, and I can't believe they do. I think we do the same thing that they're doing in the church, which leads Paul to ask in verse 4, who are you to judge over these issues that the Bible is not explicit about? Because God's the master of our Christian brothers and sisters, and we're all to stand before him. Who are you to judge? Answer, we're not to judge. And Paul moves from verse 5, in verse 5, from what you eat to the conscience issue of holy days. And a second principle, if you want to write it down, each of us should be personally convinced in our own decision. When it comes to conscience issues, each of us should be personally convinced our own decision. Middle five, each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. The one who observes the day, observes it in honor of the Lord. The one who eats, eats in honor of the Lord, since he gives thanks to God. While the one who abstains, abstains in honor of the Lord and give thanks to God. Paul wants Christians in Rome fully convinced of their perspective on given conscience issue. So he's not saying you're black and white binary conscience can't make a decision, but he is saying, figure out your conscience on that issue. And it is to honor the Lord. Whatever you decide, you have to be able to honor the Lord in it. And that's because, verse 7 to 9, the principle Paul's unpacking is we are not our own. We belong to God. So whatever decision you're making, you submit to God in it. Christ lived, Christ died for all our lives, not just this puny little portion we're sometimes presenting him with. Paul's heart, don't fight for conscience issues, fight for unity. And then based on Isaiah 45, 23, he's saying, and by the way, church, I didn't make up this principle that we will bow to God. That's in the text. Here then, is the answer to the question, how do Christians stay united in a church when they disagree about conscience issues by welcoming 
the weak, not quarreling over opinions, by being personally convinced in our own decisions, by remembering we're not our own and not judging. That's how. Those four ways. Maybe you're thinking, okay, fine and dandy, pastor. When it comes to Harry Potter, I suppose we can avoid that on a Sunday morning. Or when it comes to, can I teach my kids about Santa Claus, or is that like non-biblical? We can handle that one, and we won't bring it up at life group, because that's kind of a hot-button issue. So we won't, we won't fight over that stuff, but, and maybe even politics. We'll just, we'll just stay away from that. But, but what do we do when a conscience issue is so front and center that actually on a Sunday morning, we have to make a decision about what to do? Like, are we going to have drums or not? That's not a conscience issue a church can ignore forever because at some point, somebody's going to decide if we have drums. More to our struggle today. What are we going to do about masks, man? How are we going to wear them? How are we not going to wear them? Can't just avoid it because it's got to happen on a Sunday morning. I've really gotten myself into it now, haven't I? May I just say, the Bible is relevant. Any of that garbage about the Bible's an old book, it has nothing to say, baloney. Can I pray now? No, no, let's keep going. Number two, this moves us to our second point. When do Christians give up their conscience issues for the sake of unity in the church? When do Christians give up their conscience issues? Now it's really going to come to a head for us. I draw this from the middle of 13 to the end of the chapter. Here's the first principle from the middle of verse 13. Decide never to put a stumbling block or hindrance in the way of a brother. Paul's principle, don't cause your fellow Christians to sin. Don't put a stumbling block in the way of fellow Christians. What this looked like then would be somebody who's going, man, I'm going to eat the meat at the church barbecue. I'm even going to bring the meat, and then I'm going to eat it without any sensitivity to my weaker brother, and I'm going to enjoy myself. And if y'all don't have a if you all have a problem with that, that's your problem, not mine. That would be the attitude of this stronger in the faith. And, and the weaker brother, when it says stumbling, don't put a stumbling block in the view of the weaker brother. What they're talking about, what Paul's heart is here and in sister passages is when you have a person weaker in the faith, which means they can't do both options. They can only do one. And they see you eating meat and they think in their heart, I know I can't before the Lord eat meat, but I see my brother Jeremy over there eating meat. So you know what? I'm just going to ignore my conscience. I'm going to do like him. Or perhaps brother Jeremy's really being a knucklehead and he's like, mm, meat's so good, y'all should try some. And this person who's weak in the faith, who knows they can't, but really wants Brother Jeremy to like them and, oh, maybe, maybe my conscience issue isn't that big of a deal. And they eat the meat and they just know in their heart they're sinning against God, but they do it anyway. Brother Jeremy is causing this person weak in the faith to stumble. That's what they're doing. And what Paul's saying is don't do that. 
You may be strong in the faith and have two options, but you can't have that attitude of it's all y'all's problem if you're leading a brother to sin. And it's this instruction that has led many to believe that in the Roman church, it was predominantly made up of Gentiles who were those stronger in the faith, those who were free to eat meat or veggies, free to celebrate Sabbath or not, free to drink wine or not, and it was their weaker in the faith Jewish Christian brothers and sisters, but different ethnically, who were struggling because they're thinking, before the Lord, I can only eat veggies, because that's how they grew up, and that's what they thought was so important as kids, and if that's how they felt about something, Paul said, okay, you can honor your conscience. And notice, though, here, Paul doesn't say majority rules. Hey, just, just take a vote, and whichever side, veggies, meat, meat, veggies, just whatever the vote is, that's what we'll do. Nor does Paul bulldoze them with his view. He tells us his view in the text. Paul honors them giving the benefit of the doubt. Paul encouraged unity by directing those stronger in the faith to limit their food freedoms for the sake of the weaker brother. I think that's really important. Let me say that again. Paul encouraged unity in the Roman church by directing those stronger in the faith to limit their food freedoms for the sake of the weaker brother or sister. For us then, let us fight for unity by not putting a stumbling block in the way of a weaker brother or sister. They may be able to do something we can't do. They may be able to do it with a clear conscience. We can't. But if you're doing something that you know is causing a brother or sister in Christ to follow it in peer pressure and sin against God, you are guilty. And here's why, 17. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Whoever thus serves Christ is acceptable to God and approved by men. So, then let us pursue what makes for peace and Mutual upbringing. And Paul's saying, especially to those stronger in the faith, he's looking at those stronger in the faith over here who can do both, and he's going, look guys, it's not about food. It's not about holy days. It's not about wine. It's about unity. Because the kingdom of God's never been about these carnal things. The kingdom of God is about righteousness and, and peace and joy. So Paul's heart to the Roman church, quit fighting over conscience issues and fight for peace. So Christians limit their freedoms for the sake of unity when their freedoms become a stumbling block to their fellow Christians and when giving up freedoms allows for peace. And giving up freedoms allows for pursuing peace. That's 17 and 19. <laughs> but if you're tracking with me, you might be thinking to yourself, especially if you're over here in the stronger brother camp, the camp that Paul's especially aiming at in this second section, you might be thinking, Pastor, 
That sounds awful. That sounds awful, man. For real. Paul expected that when the church showed up at their Sunday night forums and they wanted to eat meat, have some wine, Paul, Paul expected the strong in faith out of love and a desire not to cause their Jewish brother or sister to stumble, expected them not to have what they wanted to eat. And I can just imagine one of the strong in the faith Gentiles going, you're kidding me. Some Jewish punk legalist who just came to Jesus is going to make me not be able to have what I want for dinner? That's exactly what's happening. That's exactly what's happening. His teaching here for all of us to see and study is, yes, if you are causing a Christian brother or sister to sin, then you give it up. For the sake of peace, you limit your freedoms. Final reason, 22 and 23, to ensure you have a clear conscience. Paul wants the Roman Christians to live with integrity before the Lord, whether they were strong in the faith or weak in the faith. Paul wants their faith to be full of integrity before the Lord. That's his heart for them. You're not to walk around with a condemned conscience, Christians, and this is huge. I'm sorry for all these years I've not explained or understood or taught it, but, but, but get it now. You, if you're a Christian, are to live with a clear conscience before the Lord. And if you know that you're doing something against your conscience, even if I can do that thing, or even if everybody else you know can in a clear conscience do that thing, but in your heart it's sin, you cannot do it. Conscience can make a right thing wrong. But it can never make a wrong thing right. I wish I thought of that quote. I didn't. <laughs> but I like it. Thank you, Pastor Dever. Conscience can make a right thing wrong. But it can't make a wrong thing right. I've taken up uh, the hobby of smoking a cigar. I think I've had one this week. Maybe it's two. You may go, I can't do that in clear conscience before the Lord. I can't do that, Jeremy. How dare you? Well, but, but I can do that. And as long as I'm not sinning against the Lord on something the Bible's not explicit about, and seeing as like the Prince of Preachers, Spurgeon, smoked him every day, ten times a day, I'm feeling okay personally before the Lord, and I'll answer for that. But if I'm causing you to begin to smoke a cigar, and you're sinning against the Lord, and the only reason you're doing it is because I am, man, I feel awful. Well, then I'll quit. I'll quit. I mean, on the other hand, you may just not like it, but that's not the same as causing you. It's not the same as causing you to sin, just because you don't like it. Here then is when Christians are to give up their conscience issues. 
if it caused another Christian to stumble in order to pursue peace, to ensure they were living with clear consciences. We've done the heavy lifting. Let's move to our final point. Here's the application. How do we, Mill Creek, how are we going to pursue unity despite these disagreements about conscience issues? This is so crucial. Man, I've ignored it for so long. I've tried to be thorough here in applications. I have four. First, let's be sensitive about the conscience issues that can attack our unity, Mill Creek. Let's be sensitive, okay? Conscience issues cause so much harm. They cause church splits. So let's tread carefully. Maybe we're not fighting over whether you have to wear Sunday best on worship service or not Sunday best, but that blown up churches before. Or whether the biblical option is public school or the biblical option is private school or the biblical option is homeschool, that can blow churches up. For us today, though, I think areas for us to be careful include politics. Whether it's your party or your candidate, whether you're thinking about the merits of socialism over capitalism, or maybe you view capitalism as more biblical than socialism, or maybe you're just talking about your voting strategy. Man, these conversations can become radioactive so quickly. Church, let's not fight over politics. Let's fight for unity. In addition to politics, of course, COVID is a sensitive topic. You throw in masks and vaccination, this is really sensitive. So let's, let's be careful with these conversations. And of course, in my view, we've lost people from both sides. Man, you guys are way too conservative. Man, you guys are way too liberal. This is tricky, but let's not fight over COVID. Let's fight for unity. And another area that is highly personal been very sensitive for me is over our unspoken rules about what's okay or not okay to post on social media. And I've had this highly sensitive personal preference that social media should be only used for puppy dogs and kids. It's the only, only thing it should be used for. Thank you very much. Others see it as a public square where genuine discussion can occur. Let's not divide over our personal preference of how social media should be used. Doesn't mean you can't have discussions, and it doesn't mean you can't go off the rails on both sides of that. There are times when the Bible speaks of those things, but we're not going to Let's not fight over our preference of what social media is. Let's fight for unity. And look, conscience issues aren't going anywhere. They're going to be around in a year from now, 10 years from now. I think modesty is going to continue to be an issue that's a conscience issue. I think, can you watch MMA or the NFL in good conscience? That's going to be an issue. I think there's going to continue to be such popular television shows and movies that have high views of LGBTQ+. And you're going to have to wrestle with, before the Lord, can you watch that or not? Legalized marijuana, that's going to be an issue. Kids and cell phones. My point isn't to tell you the sky's falling. It's just to prepare us that we need this doctrine.
this doctrine. And, and thoughtful discussion and disagreement is welcome. We've just got to make sure we're not dividing over it. So step one, pursue unity. Application one, unity by being sensitive. A- application two, embrace humility. Church, if we're going to endure the stress and pressure that the culture is putting on us, we've got to be full of Christians humble. Humble that are willing to go look at the text and go, I will submit to what God has written in his scripture. And I'm going to hold some of my convictional decisions loosely. Even if you've got like that weaker conscience, if the Bible tells you you don't have to have that weaker conscience, say drinking wine, for example, man, I can't in good conscience drink wine. Well, did you know it's in the Bible that you can? That you'd be humble enough to go, well, yeah, my conscience is inspired and infallible, and if the Bible corrects me, then I'm going to let the Bible correct me. We've got to even have humility to realize we may be misclassifying what a conscience issue is. You might have taken offense with me this morning for some of the things I've called a conscience issue, and you've thought, that isn't a conscience issue. I know without a doubt Harry Potter's from devil. Wrong, we're out of here, honey. We might be even wrong about what we put in the bucket. I hope this explains then why it's been so hard for us as elders to talk through this issue, man. Some of us see it as a conscience issue, some of us don't see it as a conscience issue. That's why we tried to find unity by having one service where masks are have been strongly recommended, one where they're optional. But here's why this is all so hard for us, man. It's why it's so radioactive. We're all really proud people. Me included. Man, we're proud people who've drawn our conclusions long ago, and it doesn't matter what article or blog or person is speaking against us. We've put ourselves in an echo chamber. We've surrounded ourselves by people that agree with us. We might say, yeah, maybe I'm wrong, but we don't mean it. I say that. We baptize our conscience conclusions, determine they're inspired and infallible, and it leads us to proudly fight over them more than unity. But unity is in the text. An antidote to pride? Humility. And is this conscience issue bringing peace to the church? Maybe you've got a clear conscience on what's being fought about, but what about the fight that you're in over it? Application two, embrace humility. Third, relate to one another with love. Church, we've got to stop despising those who compared to us are weak in the faith. Man, if you're over here and you're strong in the faith, quit despising the person. And if you're, if you're weak in the faith and you're over here, quit judging the person who's on the other side. Just because your conscience tells you you can't do something doesn't mean every other Christian is sinning when they do. The doctrine of conscience teaches us that when the Bible is silent about something, genuine and sincere Bible-believing Christians can hold different opinions. For both sides then, those strong in the faith and those weak in the faith, What if we loved one another and gave each other the benefit of the doubt? Wouldn't that be a brilliant alternative? 
I'm just going to trust that if you're strong in the faith, you really are. And you're going to have to answer to God for it, so I'm going I'm to entrust that to you. And over here to go, man, you don't feel like you have the freedom to do that? Okay, I believe the best in you. Which is exactly what Paul does in our text, Romans 14, 6 to 9. He gives the benefit of the doubt. He thinks about people in the best option. Then let's quit putting the worst spin and motives on those we disagree with. Let's fight for peace instead of dividing over conscience issues. Fourth and finally, let's keep the main thing the main thing. The scripture's clear. The main man of the Bible, that's Jesus. The main mission of the Bible, that's making disciples. The main message of the Bible, that's the gospel. Man, the gospel's the main thing. Conscience issues aren't the main thing. The gospel is the main thing. In verse 3, don't you pass judgment because if God has welcomed the person in Christ Jesus, don't you judge them. Gospel's more important than conscience issues, verse 3. Or verse 9, since Jesus is the Lord of the living and the dead, then he's certainly Lord over how you live today. Gospel's the main thing. Jesus didn't die on the cross to be in charge of you for this much of your life. He's in charge of it all. So let's submit all our lives to him, including our conscience issues. Verse 15, the gospel's the main thing. Your conscience issue should not destroy a fellow Christian. Man, Christ died for that brother or sister over there. So be careful. Conscience issues aren't the main thing. Now, Paul goes bananas when you try to make conscience issues the main thing. That's what happens in Galatians. They took a conscience issue of circumcision and said, Jesus plus circumcision equals salvation. And if you want to make Paul mad, he'll go nuclear on you. Just read Galatians. He says stuff in that letter that is in your Bible that if I said right now, you might walk out. This is just the text. Here's the question. Do, do you value your conscience issue more or church unity more? I think that... I think that gets down to it. Do you value your conscience issue more or unity more? Here's the heart of the book of Romans. Here's, here's the book of Romans in a sentence. The gospel powerfully unites a church's belief and behavior. Hear my heart, church. You may not be feeling a lot of love in this sermon because conscience issues can feel so fatal we can have a healthy discussion and dialogue but, but if conscience issues get too radioactive we may need to shut them down we don't have to agree on every conscience issue I think it's healthy that we hold different opinions and it breaks my heart when people are going to divide over conscience issues but, but hear my heart I want our commitment to unity to be greater than our commitment to our conscience issue. At this point, I've asked a special guest to come up, and we're going to talk just for a moment here, both, I hope, in an effort to help you, but also as an example of how Christians can really love one another, even though they don't necessarily agree on conscience issues. So this is real life. Craig... Hi. It was nice of you not to leave and not come back here. <laughs> I, Craig said, hey, if I don't, 
if, 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 if you don't go well in that sermon, you just, you're going to call me up. I'm not going to be there. So thank you for, <laughs> thank you for being here. And I, we wanted to give a real-life example of what it looks like to um, have a difference of opinion on conscience issues. But, and so let, let me start with this. Do you agree with everything that I just preached on, on conscience issues and all my examples? Heck no. <laughs> um, which may be more surprising to other people, and it probably is to you, because we've um, spent so many hours yeah. talking about these issues, not for fun, but um, because as part of church leadership, we've had to figure this stuff out. Um, so we've, yeah, we've talked quite a bit. Yeah. And it, it's not surprising to you that we're not entirely in sync on some things. Yeah. Would you call those conversations we've had fun? Uh, in an odd way, yes. <laughs> it really was. Um, I try not to spat out with my own opinion as much as I used to. Um, I really do. So, uh, I yet it, it feels good to be asked what your opinions are, and it feels good to be able to discuss those without friction. Yeah. And and I think we've been able to do that. I expect that. Uh, well, I know I've been frustrated at times that I haven't been able to convert you to every one of my opinions. Um, and you probably feel frustrated when I drone on and on and, um, until I bore even myself. And um, we've, I think we joked even at one point that you should get extra points every time I say, latest studies show. <laughs> The uh, thing I love about Craig is um, he's a real deal. He's a real deal. And he, uh, he has, while having very strong opinions and, and thoughtful conclusions, he has been so humble when we disagree and is willing to hold those things with an open hand. And it actually makes your arguments even more compelling for me because there's freedom to discuss, and you've just been so kind in how you've been able to relate, and it's one of the reasons I just value so highly as a friend, or at least I value you as a friend. Do you see us still as friends despite the conscience issue confusion here? Yeah, I do. I think we're definitely friends. I, there was a rocky time at one point during this past year, not, not just with the way I felt um, about our friendship, but with the way I felt about everything, because uh, I was feeling a little bit isolated and upset in re in re about, about these issues. And in retrospect, I, I think that everybody feels isolated sometimes about these issues because when you take your own personal set of beliefs and you apply them to your own life, which is includes your family, your own personal health, your job, schools, everybody is coming at this from a little bit of a different point of view and feeling isolated, it, it's not fun. It, it makes you paranoid, makes you upset quite a bit. Um, but there have been some things that have transitioned for me in the past several months that um, really have made me think of things differently. I, look, I, I'm, I was wrong, kind of, I think, in the way that I looked at things. Um, my family is not the number of people across America who agree exactly with what I think about all of these issues. Um, they may be brilliant, I think they are, 
Um, but they're not my family. I don't know them. They don't know me. Uh, and it's very possible that on these issues or other issues that come up next year, we're going to be on opposite sides. What I've realized is that my true family is the family of God, the, the people here. Because um, there's one thing that we'll never disagree about, and that's who Jesus is. Whatever the public issues are that we talk about, we've always got that. And, and I came to understand, and actually to, it became very personal, that people here love me as family do. And uh, some people even like me. And I count myself as one of those who also likes you. And it's, uh, you help change plenty of things the way I think about it. So is it hard at this point to not fall back into this sort of polarizing way for you? Or what's that, what's that like for you? Uh, yeah, it is hard. Uh, because, uh, you know, once or twice a week, you know, I might hear something or talk to somebody about something. And I go right back down the well. You know, I'm down at the bottom of the political or the pandemic well flailing around until I remember, oh, wait, God's family. And, and, I, um, and if I ask God to pull me out, God pulls me right out. Um, and I think what God is doing with me right now is teaching me uh, first to, to call on him more quickly to pull him out so I'm not flailing around because that's not fun. Um, but the other thing is about what we were talking about today, unity. You and I may not be in sync on everything, but I, I totally love this passage of Romans, and I am in total agreement with you about church unity. Yeah. Um, because what, we may not agree on everything right now. We'll come across something new next year that we won't all agree on. Yeah. But as family, we've got drama, we've got disagreements, we've got Thanksgiving dinners coming up, we've got things all, we, we all understand that, and we can all work together on that, and that's what my prayer would be. Yeah. But for you, I would think it would be kind of especially difficult, because you hear all of the opinions, and uh, maybe with the extra weight of some expectation that you do something about it, how do you, so how is that for you? Yeah, thanks. It tears me up to hear you affirm that. Uh, here's the secret. I actually bounce nearly every idea I have off of Craig. That's what I do. And um, we talk through these things, and you, we have a plurality of elders that I love and trust, and we uh, do the best we can with the information we have. Um, at the end of the day, I want the dominant notes of the text to be the dominant notes of this church. And I think you're right that the dominant notes here are church unity and getting along. And um, for you then, church, if you feel like, man, I just don't know how this is actually going to work for me, feel free to visit with Craig or you can come visit with me. Man, the gospel's bigger than all of these things. And I'm grateful that you've stuck in there with me. And uh, I suppose it also should go for the record. Craig's changed my, li my, my ideas a lot more than I've ever changed his. So if we're going to keep score, he's winning right now. And um, my guess is he always will. And so there's that. Craig, thanks for coming up here and visiting. Uh, can I pray for us, church, as we transition here? So, uh, Spirit, you're the power, and, and I pray you would take your word and you would drill it into our hearts. And uh, we'll look to you. In the face of a politically divided 
economically divided, ethnically divided, socioeconomic divisions. We, we look to you for unity, and um, I pray then because of the cross that you who brought unity vertically would give us unity horizontally, and we could love you. Jesus, for anybody who's really struggling, I pray peace. And, um, for those who are highly opinionated, I pray humility. And I pray you give us grace to fight for uh, the main thing. In Jesus' name, amen. If you like what you've heard or want to find out more information, please visit our website at mymillcreek.com.